0: Chad and Jay Mansbridge here, lead pastors of Bayside Church International, based here on the south coast of South Australia. Our great passion as a church is to help people to know Jesus and to demonstrate His love, truth and life in everything that we do. We hope you enjoyed today's message. A couple of weeks ago, Jay um, spoke a message on uh, preparing the table for 2020. It was our first service for Christmas, and she asked us to turn to our Bibles to the story of the Last Supper. And, systematic thinker that I am, I thought, well, that's not right. It's Christmas season. You don't talk about Jesus dying at Christmas. And as I explained last week, as she was continuing, it occurred to me, no, 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 no. Jesus was born to die. And the phrase came to me as she was speaking last week, uh, two weeks ago, he was born to die so that. The dead may live. He was born to die, so that the dead may live. And often, as I said last week, we bemoan the fact that Boxing Day is known for bakers cooking hot cross buns. But maybe that is something, as I said, we should celebrate the fact that part of the reason for the season, yes, we're celebrating Jesus' birth, but hand in hand with that, it is fine to celebrate the death of Christ after all, he was born to die. And I thought, you know, Lord, that's really helpful for me to have a title like that, because let's face it, I've been preaching 17 Christmases now. So I could always do with a slightly fresh angle on a very old story. Come on. Come on. You know you've heard me teach on the gifts that the wise men brought. I've snuck that one in a few times. You know we uh, you've heard me speak about the names of Jesus that were given him at Christmas. I've snuck that in a few a few times. I'm at least one of the honest preachers to say <laughs> today I'm revisiting an old message. At least I say it out loud, okay? But now, I'm thinking, Lord, you've given me like a fresh angle to talk about the fact that you were born to die so that the dead may live. I started that last week I wanted to continue something on that this morning because the Christmas story is something that is well known to us and sometimes when it comes to things that are well known we tend to switch off to think yeah know, yeah I've heard that I get that. Yet often and I'm sure you've experienced this in your Christian life if not it is a key to maturity and a key to growth is going lord I'm always willing to learn. I'm always willing To hear an ancient story and see something fresh in the text, to see something fresh in the story that I've never seen before. And I say that for another reason because today I want to share, not the Christmas story per se, but I want to share one of the other really, really well-known stories of Jesus that many of you know. Like me, you've heard it spoken of a number of times, like me possibly, if you've been involved in ministry, kids or adults or small groups, you may have even taught out of this story yourself as I have. But this week as I read through the parable of the prodigal son, I saw some things that I'd never quite seen before. And so I trust that today, again, we can put our hats on as good students and say, Lord, my heart is open, as we've done, my head is also open to hear whatever it is you are wanting to say. Can, you be, can we be good students again today and, and come around His Word and say, Lord, speak, for your student is listening. Amen? Can you do that with me? Luke chapter... someone tell me? 15, well done. All right. Luke chapter 15 and... Uh, I'm going to uh, look at a, a couple of these stories here again, well known, but uh, let's see if we can see and trust God to reveal something fresh to us. We call this story the story of the prodigal son. The word prodigal is not actually used in the Bible because it has Latin origins, okay? So it didn't come around uh, till after the, sort of the time the Bible was written and this story became known as the prodigal son. The Latin word basically means recklessly extravagant. So, in a negative sense, the word prodigal means recklessly, extravagantly wasteful. But in a positive sense, it's the story of the prodigal father who was recklessly, extravagantly generous. So is it the story of the prodigal son? Or is it the story of the prodigal? Father, is Jesus' focus on these stories, what was lost? Or is his focus on these stories, who it was that found them? And you can talk about that over lunch. Let's go. Chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes Jesus sinners and eats with them so Jesus told them this parable. Three groups of people that we see here to set the scene. You've got Jesus, you've got the Pharisees, the religious people and you've got the sinners and the tax collectors. Jesus, the religious and the so-called sinners and Jesus picks up their muttering and he says, I'm going to tell you A story. You need, as you read the scripture to understand it well, you need to understand the audience to whom something is addressed. Let's know right from the word go that the audience Jesus is addressing is not the sinners, although they overheard the story because they were right there, but the audience he was addressing were the religious. Okay, he told them this parable because of their muttering. As we read through these stories, we see these three groups of people: Jesus, who is both God and God's representative. So as we read the stories, we're reading about what God is like and what his representatives are like. We're reading about a religious community and we're reading about a lost community. There are a number of constituent elements in these stories. We have an owner who is emotional. A few of the, when we prayed before our service, a few people said, I feel like God's wanting to restore a joy today or help Use me to restore joy. Okay, you know why the word joy came up? Because joy is an emotional word. God is an emotional God. Hello? Okay, happy God. Okay, happy God, emotional God, joyful God, joy to the world, because I've come. So we see an owner who actually is emotional in these stories, and depending on who you are and how you read these stories, some people feel that the shepherd, the woman, and the, and the father represent Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God, the dad. Whatever, you can take that, take that home if you like. But in each case, they are all happy owners, they are both passionate people, and they are prudent people, because they don't want what they've lost to go to stay lost. So they're prudent and passionate, both are important. In these stories we have something precious, which obviously speaks about people, shepherd, a coin, a son. In each of these stories we have a state of that precious thing being a lost and a state of that precious thing being found and they're described in different ways. This is sin and salvation. We have an owner's home. In each of the cases when the thing is found, they gather in the home. So Jesus brings an explanation and he says, God the Father celebrates in heaven because heaven is God's home. A lot of people want to go to heaven when they die, but they don't want to know God. Well, heaven's God's home, okay? That's where he is. You want to go to a place, but you don't want to meet the person. Well, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Let me in your house. I want to live in your house forever, but I don't want to talk to you. Okay, great. Uh, well well done to you. Heaven's only good because God's there. Heaven is God's home. We have a house. And then we've got two s- communities. We've got a community that celebrates! And we've got a community that was never lost in the first place. So these are the constituent elements as we read these stories. Those are the three groups, Jesus, in this story from these few opening verses. We've got Jesus. We've got the religious And we've got the sinners, and Jesus tells the religious people these stories. He wants to get their attention to explain, what the heck are you doing hanging out with sinners? I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'll explain it in verse 4. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? Listen to me. Doesn't one of you in this story the word shepherd is never used he looks at the religious people and he wants to tell them a story and he says don't you when you own a sheep when you want to sell someone something those of you who are in sales understand this to win someone over to draw them into your story one of the best things you can do is talk about them help them see themselves in the story. And Jesus is complimenting these religious people, drawing them into a story to say, how about you? After all, you're a good shepherd, aren't you? When you own sheep, this is what you would do. Jesus draws them in to the story by saying, what if one of you owns sheep? Fascinating. Good tactic, Jesus. And when he finds this lost sheep, sheep he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home he calls his friends and neighbors together and says rejoice with me I found my lost sheep I tell you in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who don't need to three groups of people Jesus the sinners I think they're over here weren't they the sinners And the religious, those who are already in the fold, don't need to repent because they are in the fold. And Jesus says, this shepherd, as good as he is, will see the 99 and he'll leave them. He won't leave them alone. He won't abandon them. Because shepherds, as we know from the Christmas story, shepherd in teams. Angels came to the shepherds. Because when you're in the fields at night time, you take shifts. I'll be awake from 11 to 2, then I'll sleep and you can be awake from 2 to 5. Okay, we'll look after each other's sheep. So this shepherd doesn't abandon his sheep. He leads them in charge of other shepherds while he goes and looks for the one. Okay. What does he do? He finds the one, he finds the sinner, he's joyful, he celebrates and the sheep who are safe are as they are. This picture of course of God's leaders being shepherds is all the way through the Scriptures, remember? While this is a picture of God, it's also a picture of God's representatives on the earth. Because the question is, Jesus, why are you doing this? And he says, I'll tell you why I'm doing this, because this is what God's representatives should do. God's representatives should celebrate returning sinners. Okay, so, he's, so it's a picture of the leaders, what the leaders should have been like. Jesus is illustrating that as well. And how this state of what it means to be lost, Jesus is painting this picture, that one of the pictures of what it means to be lost is that you are not in the fold. You are scattered. The ones over here were in the safety of a field being protected by shepherds. The one over here was lost and where did he go? What does the story say about where this lost sheep went? Where did he go? We don't know. It doesn't say. Clueless, gone anywhere. Okay, this is a picture of being lost, is being lost, having no location, being cast out of the promised land, as it were, of being a wanderer, okay, like Cain, okay, a restless wanderer, don't even know where he is. That's the picture there. Next story, verse 8. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbours together and says, rejoice with me, I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, some people make a deal of the awkwardness that the religious people might have felt with, God using, with Jesus using a woman to illustrate God. Okay, some people think that's a thing. I'm not a fan of that perspective. I get it, I can understand it. But I think, remember, Jesus is wanting to win these He's telling a story. He wants these religious people to be on his side. He's not putting them off yet. He's drawing them in. And so I think what he's probably doing is is still suggesting to them, what if a woman, in other words, what if your own wife, religious leaders, what if your wife lost a coin? What would you hope for her to do? You came home and your wife said, I've lost a day's salary. Okay, what would I expect of my wife if she lost a coin? Well, I'd expect her to be prudent and I'd expect her to look for it. I wonder whether that's maybe what Jesus is doing here. Just a thought. It's interesting that while all the, state, all the elements of the story there are celebrating community, nine coins that weren't lost, etc., there's something different about this story than the sheep story. Get this, the coin was lost inside the house. There are three groups of people in this story from verse 1. Jesus, who in this picture is obviously the woman. Okay, this is how God acts. This is how we as his representatives should act. There is something that is lost and there is something that has never been lost. The lost item in this story is in the house. And I'm wondering whether the contrast here is the picture of, yeah, sinners who are... The sheep was a sinner who's far away from God. Scattered, gone, way away from God's house. I wonder if here in this story, he's saying, you know, another thing that's lost? You can be in the house and not connected to the owner. I wonder if Jesus is subtly hinting here, I'm talking about you religious people. I'm just dropping a hint. I'm dropping a hint that, yeah... Lost people can be those who are far away, but lost people can also be those who are near, who are in the house. But like Adam in the garden, God's there. They're in the same proximity. And God's like, where are you, mate? We're in the same garden. I haven't left. You haven't left. We're in the house, but where are you? I wonder if this woman's walking around going, my coin's here. It hasn't left. It's still in the house, but I'm not connected with my coin and this state of lostness is not being scattered and far away this state of lostness is being in the house but being in the dark because to find this coin what does she need to do she needs to light a lamp so how does jesus describe the state of lostness here it's not about being distant it's about being in the house but in the dark and i wonder Whether Jesus here is dropping a bit of a hint to say, Now, boys, I'm coming for you. And we continue to read. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. Jesus changes his tune here. Listen. In the first story, he said, Suppose you had a sheep. Suppose there was a woman. There was a man who had two sons. Not a question, a statement. This is a story I'm telling you is real. The younger one said to his father, Dad, give me my share of the estate. So his father divided his property between them. Fair enough. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living, hence the term prodigal for the son, extravagant, exuberant spending. Okay. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him off to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating but nobody gave him anything. And as you've heard many of you many times before, to the Jewish mind, nothing could be more repulsive than that. Pigs are an unclean animal, okay? Verse 17. When he came to his senses, some of your Bibles say, when he came to himself, the further away we are from the Father, the further away we are from our true self. The further we are away from the Father, the further we are away from our true self and this guy, how light went on and said, he came back to himself. What the heck am I doing? Verse 17. He said, how many of my dad's hired servants have food to spare? Here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my dad and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. And of course, people talk about how genuinely repentant this was. He doesn't say the sorrow gripped him as to how much he'd, gri- he'd hurt his dad's feelings. It doesn't say sorrow gripped him as to how he realized he was a rebel. Okay? But still, something went off in his mind, right? That was planned. Something still went off in his mind. He went, my dad's servants are eating better than me. And so you can question how genuinely heartfelt his repentance was, but Jesus' focus isn't his genuine repentance. Jesus' focus, remember, is on the dad and how the dad responds. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his dad saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And you've heard this story, you've heard it said, to run as a Jewish man, to run with a robe meant literally he had to, like a big dress, right? He had to literally gird his loins, as the old King James, all right? So he pulls up his, his, his robe and he's running, okay? Very undignified, because that's how dad's run, you know? He's running and he. Uh, some of the old translations say he fell onto his neck and kissed him. Holy, holy, holy. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy of to be called your son, but the father said to his servants. And as you've heard before, the father interrupts his speech because he had more to his speech. He'd rehearsed it and he was only halfway through it and the dad wouldn't have a bar of it. Interrupted him and said, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him, dignity. Put a ring on his finger, authority. Sandals on his feet, sonship. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. The fatted calf, uh, specifically it says there in the Greek, the grain-fed calf or the calf that they fed with a stall. It wasn't a cow that was out in the open field. It was a cow that was basically within the proximity of their front yard who ate grain out of a stall. This was a very, very special animal, a young cow, a calf, a calf. It was a young animal getting fattened up for a very special purpose. For this son of mine was dead and is dead. Alive again, he was lost and he was found and they began to celebrate. Was this son really dead? Was he dead physically? No. No. Okay, this is a relational term. That son was basically dead to me when he was lost. He was dead, relationally dead, out of covenant, out of the house, out of proximity. But now he is alive again. The father is saying, this kid has been raised from the dead. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him, what is going on? Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fat and calf because he back safe and sound. The older brother was so happy with the news that his brother had returned. <laughs> the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. Three groups of people in this story. Jesus... Sinners who were coming back, and Jesus was celebrating them, and then the religious people who were muttering and muttering and muttering about it. So Jesus now has a, as a the climax of these stories. The focus, remember, is on the religious people. That's who he's talking to, and now he brings them into the story in a way that they never saw coming. The older son was in the field when he came near the house. Uh, blah 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 your father your brother has come your father's killed the fatted calf verse 28 the older brother became angry refused to go in so his father went out and pleaded with him the father loved the older son the father wanted the older son to be part of the celebration the father's attitude to the older son had not changed the father wanted the older son to celebrate so he went out he went out of his comfort zone left the party in this story, the father does not go out to find the younger son. He's waiting, and as the younger son's coming, then he runs out. He meets him. But in this case, the father leaves the house to go looking for the real lost son. The son who is in the house, but not in relationship, didn't really know the heart of his dad. He left to go looking to search for that older Lost son, But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Come back to that later. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home... You kill the fatted calf for him. We don't know whether the younger son slept with prostitutes, whether this was an embellishment, whether this was the older son dropping hints, whether this is what religion always does and exaggerates things, makes things seem worse than it. We don't really know. Maybe he was following him on Twitter and, and, you know, maybe he was spying on him in the foreign, had spying. We don't really know. But anyway, he says that he prostitutes, first time that's mentioned, prostitutes, you fattened the calf, uh, killed the fattened calf. My son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. You're the heir, mate. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. We had to celebrate because this brother of yours was dead but is alive again. He was lost but he is found. And although Jesus in the story doesn't cap this one off by explaining this is what happens in heaven when a sinner repents, the insinuation is still there. There are two groups of people. Those who did not need to be found or didn't think they did. Those who did need to be found. And this state of lostness in the the story of the shepherd, it is scattering. Far away! In the story of the lost coin, it is darkness in the house, but dark. In this story, it is far away. Okay? It is far away and close. The two are together. Because this is the story of two lost sons that need to come home to their dad. And we don't know what happened to the older son in this story. But what we do know is that Jesus was born to die so that those who are dead may come alive. The lost would be found. This son of mine that was dead is now Alive. Chad, bring this together. In Luke 2, we read this last week, Simeon's holding baby Jesus, baby Jesus, baby Jesus, 40 days old, and he says to him, he says, my eyes have seen your salvation, your Yeshua, is the word for Hebrew word, my eyes have seen Yeshua, Jesus, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in sight of all nations. He is both a light of revelation for the nations and for the glory of your people Israel. The baby was born so that two groups of people could be ministered to, those who were far away and those who were already near to God but still needed God's glory to shine on them. This ministry of Jesus reconciling these two groups of people did not happen in his birth. It required him to die. And so this is why, toward the end of his life, when people are, uh, are tracking him down to kill him, Caiaphas, another old man, prophesies, and unwittingly, incidentally, the high priest, and said that he didn't, it says in John eleven fifty one, he did not say what he said on his own, but as high priest he prophesied Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, And not only for that nation, but for all the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Jesus would die for those who were near but still lost, and Jesus would die for those who are scattered and far away and needed to be found. As I explained last week, this is a a fulfillment of the prophetic promises all the way through the Old Testament. When God's people were split into two kingdoms, into two groups, those who were called Israel, Hosea says they died. They were scattered. They were scattered through the nations, and that they were no longer God's people. The other kingdom, the Jews, the people of Judah, were close to Him, but they didn't have His glory presence with them. They were in the temple. They were in the promised land. God was faithful to them, but they were still far away from his presence because his glory did not come back. And so Caiaphas says he's come for the Jews and he's come for the nations. Paul brings this up in Romans 9. He says the promises of restoring the northern kingdom were promises made to the nations so that the two would become one. This is why Paul in Ephesians 2 says you nations were dead in sin. Like the prodigal son, you were away from God and you were dead. Dead in sin. But through Jesus' blood, the two groups have been brought together as one. The younger brother who is far away, the older brother who is close but still far away, have been brought near into the family of God because of the blood of Christ we can come together. Hey? Jesus was born for the Gentiles and for Jews to bring us together and make a whole new family. And it made me wonder as I read the prodigal son's story again this week. Hear me on this. Those who were far away. We often talk about the prodigal son as being a story of God's incredible forgiveness. Yeah? yeah what a story about forgiveness embracing, even though the repentance might not have been awesomely repentant, the Father embracing, it's a wonderful story of repentance. Jesus is talking to a Jewish community and they know that forgiveness from God is not possible without something happening. What is required... In order for forgiveness to take place, I wondered, as I read the Prodigal Son story this week, I wondered, can you see Jesus' death in this story? Because it's a story of forgiveness. It's a story of older brother and younger brother supposed to be coming together. It's a story of reconciliation. And we know that that reconciliation didn't take place in Jesus' birth. It took place in his death. So is there Jesus' death incorporated somehow in This story. After all, doesn't the Bible say there is no forgiveness unless there is the shedding of blood? Hebrews 9 says that. I looked it up. Okay, let's go. Hebrews 9, verse 22. In fact, the law requires, this is how the religious people would have been thinking, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood in the Jewish mind, there is no forgiveness. Now, what blood of what animals had forgiveness for God's old covenant people? Well, in that same chapter, just 10 verses earlier, he sets this whole thing up for them. He says, Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered by the most holy place once for all, obtaining redemption. This is a picture, Leviticus something, of the day of atonement, the day of atonement. The day where God's people were reconciled to him and forgiven. And it took two animals for that to happen. Aaron, the high priest, would kill a calf. Kill a calf. Then he would kill a goat. A calf and a goat. The calf would be for him. Not because he was more important, not because his sin was worse, but he was special, he was set apart. It was like distinguishing, my sin needs a calf. Because it's really important. My sin needs a calf and then I kill a goat for everybody else. That's what Hebrews is talking about. Talking about the Day of Atonement. Everyone's forgiven because a calf dies and a goat dies for everyone else. Where else have we read this morning about a calf and a goat dying? Not a chicken, not a dove, not a pigeon, not a sheep, not an ox, not a ram, specifically a calf and a goat. Story of the prodigal son. Come, kill the fattened calf, the one that's been prepared for this moment. And the older brother said, you couldn't even kill for me a chicken? No. You couldn't even kill for me a bird? No. You couldn't even kill for me a goat. I'm wondering in this story, is it possible that Jesus is tapping in to this awesome picture of forgiveness, reconciliation with God on the day of atonement, where the most special person Aaron had a calf killed for him? Everyone else had a goat that covered the rest of him. Is that possibly what the older son is tapping into here as he says that? You see, this story contains three sons. The younger son, dead and alive. The older son, who like the coin was in the house but was still lost. And then it contains the son who is telling the story. puts himself in the story because of my death these can be restored the blood of the calf shed that sinners can be restored to new life and celebrated would I sacrifice for those who are close to me would I give a goat for them you bet I would you want in you can be in too Everything that I have is yours, anytime, any day. And Jesus places himself in this story by saying, I'm the one that would be willing to shed my blood, that these two can be in the house together. See, that calf, hand raised, a baby, like a pet that you'd fall in love with, Raised within the front yard, that the owners would watch it. Like the lamb on Passover. The owners would watch it, nurture it, care for it, feed it. That precious chosen animal that was killed, so a celebration of reconciliation could take place. Jesus came to reconcile those who were far away from God, dead in sin and can be resurrected and alive again, welcomed into the house of the kissing father. Jesus came and died for those who were close to him, who were in the house but still far from the father's heart. And he brings both together Ephesians 2, those who are far away, those who are near are brought together by the shedding of his blood. What Simeon prophesied at Jesus' birth, that here is the Lord's Yeshua, the Lord's salvation, the one who restores lost things. He's come not only for the nations. He's come also for God's only very close people. Jesus was born to die so that the dead can come alive. And just like we've possibly grown, maybe grow weary with the Christmas story, Maybe we grow weary with the the stories that we've heard again and again. One of my jobs at home is I often read bedtime stories to Zoe. And we've got a pile of books. There's like seven of them. And I've read them over and over and over and over. She can't read, but she can recite many of the stories she thinks she can read. okay? Because I've read them so many times. And yet I wonder how much time sometimes that familiarity with the stories of God yeah, I've heard that, I've heard that, I've heard that. I wonder if in this Christmas season we can open our hearts to seeing and being in awe of the wonder of the Christmas story again. Can we do that? Think you can do that? And the same when we worship Him. How can you, you and your team help us? When we sing lyrics that were sung before. When we sing carols we've sung before. When we've done something that we've done many times before, I'm hoping that we can find freshness and we can find life in those situations and those circumstances. That'd be a good thing, wouldn't it? Hey, Who wants that this Christmas season? All right, I'm, I'm in for that. How many of you are glad that Jesus has brought you in? How many of you are glad that you were dead and now you're alive again? How many of you are glad that God is a rejoicing God that celebrates? I Mao mean, sang a song before about our value. Whether you think you're one in a hundred, whether you think you're one in ten, whether you think you're one in two, whatever proportion, you are one of a kind. And He was searched for the one. He was searched for the one. He was searched for the one. And I'm glad Jesus has searched for me. And I don't know everyone here today. I don't know everyone by name. I don't know those of you who are listening to this recording. But Jesus doesn't love all of us only He loves each of us and He wants you to be close to Him. Not just close physically in the house, but close to Him in heart, close to Him in purpose, close to Him in relationship and Jesus' death has made that possible. You can experience more of God than you have ever before. Next year, you can experience things in God you never have before. But in some senses, you can never get nearer to Him than what you are now. Experientially, you can. But legally, you're as close to God as you're ever going to be. He's not a distant God that you need to strive to reach for. You are in His home. You've been brought near. So be aware of His nearness. Be aware of Emmanuel, God who is with us. God who has come to us And brought us in to himself. Born to die. So that we could be found. And that we can live in him. You can't get closer than that. It's already been done. You can't add to his blood. Once for all. Gave his life. For all of us. And for that we are truly grateful.